Kids Classics. Yes, on Kids Classics this week, the Fallen Friends series continues with Steve Carver. Steve Carver, that's right, the man who directed Chuck Norris, the man who learned storyboarding from Alfred Hitchcock, the man who made pasta with Sergio Leone. It was truly incredible to talk to Steve. At the time I spoke to him, he had uh, just finished his book that for more than a quarter of a century he was um, taking uh, old-school Western portraits of classic character actors like Carl Malden, David Carradine, Denver Pyle, R.G. Armstrong, L.Q. Jones, Henry Silver, Bo Hopkins, and Clue Gulliger. It was um, so uh, so sad and unexpected, as it always is, to hear when they pass. And uh, yes, it was quite a shock to uh, to just get to know Steve a little bit and. Uh, just like that, he was gone. Put your hands together, ladies and gentlemen, for the late, great Steve Carver. To get, to get the, the burning question that's in my back pocket out of the way before we get into uh, this wonderful book and the rest of your movies, how cool is Chuck Norris in real life? Ah, uh, very cool. He's, he's uh, fun to work with. Yeah. As an athlete... Uh, he's an interesting guy, and and um, he's different, uh, you know, working with because he's an athlete, and he basically works by the numbers, and you know, action scenes are his forte. And as a karate and an action actor, um, it's a lot of fun working with someone like that. Yeah, I can only imagine. Big Chuck Norris fan, love him in this film, and also how sexy is. Barbara Carrera. <laughs> Very sexy. <laughs> I know. She's, she just, she was my, I, I only bring it up because she was my first, like, uh, screen crush, if you will. Uh, <laughs> and I was just like, man, she's still fabulous. And I, then I saw her in the, have you seen the Larry Cohen documentary? Um, King Cohen? No, no, I don't think I had. Oh, right, yeah. Well, um, she, she appears in that as, you know, she is now, and she's still, like, Stunning, ravishing. It's it's incredible. It's almost like no time has gone by at all. But anyway, uh, Steve, a lot of wonderful cinema um, that you've provided us with, and now you provide us with this wonderful book, Western Portraits: The Unsung Heroes and Villains of the Silver Screen. Um, how what 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 inspired? This, I guess. What? How did this journey begin? This this book's journey, this collection of photographs begin. Well, uh, l let me back it up, and rather than tell you how it how the book actually began, right? Let me tell you how I began with the idea. Okay. Uh, because it, oh, well, that's better. It, yeah, it's yeah. different. Yep. Um, I was doing a lot of movies in in Europe and and beyond Europe. Right. Um, and I collected a lot of negatives, uh, photographs, uh, first shooting film. Right. Uh, I was in shooting digital because this was before the digital age uh, with those cameras. I was shooting film and collecting negatives. Right, right. Um, and what happened was that I, I came back to the United States after shooting uh, films because I, I was actually doing 
and directing a lot of pictures that other directors couldn't finish. Right. And I was hired to finish these pictures. And I was also directing pictures under different names because I couldn't work under my name with regard to my guild. Um, it was a violation. And, and in order to do these types of pictures, and when I say these types, they were action and, and martial art pictures. Right, right. Um, because there were smaller budgets and, and they had some complications politically, um, I, I had to use different names. But rather than go into the, uh, you know, the problems that, that occurred, uh, you know, with my guild, um, you know, I'll just explain that I did the pictures and, and I was happy to do them. Um, and accumulating all these negatives, I needed a, to build a lab and a, um, uh, a dark room mm. that enabled me to uh, create these pictures, uh, photographs, because my background, I have a master's in photography and I did a lot of photojournalism uh, before I became a director. Right. And uh, one thing led to another and I suddenly got into reproducing photographs for museums and collectors, old negatives and very famous images uh, that I got excited about creating the look of a, a 19th century or an 1800s picture, uh, especially pictures of the Civil War, pictures of uh, Native Americans, pictures of... Um, of, of cowboys and Indians and you name it. Right. Uh, but that look uh, fascinated me and, and the way in which the chemistry and, and the whole um, way that a photographer in that era took a picture. So I started reproducing uh, the look of these pictures and, and I started making uh, photographs and images that were fabulous because nowadays photographs, digital photographs don't have the same look and you right. can't make a, you know, you can't take a photograph that, that had, that has the, the detail and has the, uh, the look, I, I should say, if I went into the, into the details of what makes these photographs that be on, you know, on, on, you know, talking about it for hours, but right, right. in any case, technically, I, I learned how to make an image that was technically beautiful, beautiful. Right. And uh, in doing so, and creating it, I sat with, I had a lot of sitters that uh, had to sit for a period of time. These were time exposures. Right. And... I got tired of using amateurs, friends, homeless people, anybody right. I can get to sit right. for a period of time and take these photographs. And I thought maybe I would work with some of the actors that I that were in my films. Right. And the first actor that I called upon was R.G. Armstrong. Right. And uh, he sat for me. And the reason why an actor was good to do this type of photograph was because they were trained right. to stay still for a long time. Right. And they were also trained to create a character. 
Right. And because the technicality of doing this type of photograph uh, would take a moment of creating an energy that would, would transfer to the film and to create this type of uh, en energy that made the image uh, dynamic right. and, 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 and was different than any photograph I've ever seen and duplicated what Edward Sheriff Curtis or one of the great photographers of the 19th century mm. uh, created, um, I hit upon something that was really great. And after a while of having my friends, actors like L.Q. Jones and David Carradine and, and Denver Pyle and some of these great actors come and sit in my studio and create these sets and, 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 and dress them in wardrobe of that era, not necessarily cowboys, but, you know, Civil War era. Uh, we, we created all types of scenarios that were kind of exciting. RG came up with a, an idea one night to do a book. Right. And we titled it The Dying Breed. Right. The problem with that title was that nobody wanted to sit in for this book oh, because okay. the word dying was uh was sort of like a uh, a no no it, it was right. a taboo it's, it's uh, like it's none like, of the uh, people that i that i had asked right it's like the honorary academy award <laughs> to unsung heroes and villains of the silver screen right yeah and that that was better yeah but when i got a publisher which i'll explain later right um he changed it to western portraits the unsung heroes and villains of the silver screen. Right. Actually, it became Western, the Western portraits of great character actors, the unsung heroes and villains of the silver screen. Right, right. And I was able to get much better response from actors and, and people that I didn't know right, right. Uh, who were act for the book. Right. And that's basically how it started. And there, there were a lot, a lot of, interesting stories that lured uh, certain actors to this project right right that's incredible incredibly fascinating <clears throat> and I, I i kind of my approach as i kind of looked and thought about how to approach this i thought well because you've directed a lot of these guys and and i'm in a sort of cool position because i've actually interviewed some of them too so uh I, for the first time i'm 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 sort of in on the action a little bit. But I guess the two guys we should talk about first that are featured in this book are two guys you know obviously really well. They're in your movies uh, with with great frequency um, is RG and LQ. Uh, these two guys are, you know, the, when you, you know, I mean, great unsung character actors um it, it doesn't get any better than these two guys, really. Yes. Well, I, I met them, you know, through Sam Peckinpah. Right. When I was at the American Film Institute, uh, one of my teachers were, was Jim Silk. And Silk worked with uh, Sam uh, on his pictures. He was a writer. And um, he, that, was, <laughs> that was quite an experience. I mean... Sam Peckinpah was quite a director, and I admired his his uh, directing and him as a person. And he was an animated 
character. <laughs> right. And uh, the actors loved him. And one of the things about Sam was that he he used actors in a, in a certain way, uh, and I, I adopted some of his ways in that when you have a, an actor, a character actor, right. because character actors really carry the film. Yeah. I mean, you have lead actors that, that help sell the film and, and bring in the audience, but character actors carry the story yes. and make the leads look good. And also, as a director, you rely upon the character actor to make the story work, and also the character actors, whether they're the bad guys or the good guys, you know, they're, they're important not only to the story, but they're important to the director in that you, if you use them correctly, yes. and you use them a lot, yes. you really don't have to work hard mm -hmm. in the sense that the communication is there, they catch on very quickly. They're, they work so much, as opposed to some of the lead actors, they sort of like have a, a line of communication with you as a director. And or you, sometimes you just have to look at them and they understand exactly what you need uh, from them uh, in the acting and changing nuances. And that's how RG and LQ were. You know, they were just there to help other actors. They were there to do whatever you say you want done. Mm. I mean, they they were the epitome of of what an actor should be. And um, I loved working with them. They they were always there. If I had a role that they were good for, yeah. and they were very adaptable, by the way. Yeah. You know, they, they could do just about any role, uh, you know, their looks were good for, or their abilities were good for, which was, you know, very, very flexible. Oh, sure. You know, actors. Yeah, yeah. And um, and and they never cause problems hmm. because some actors, you know, when I say cause problems, you know, some actors just don't get it. Right. Uh, you know, they're they're there to to perform. You know a job, yeah. but sometimes, you know, it becomes difficult uh, based on the fact that they're difficult. Yeah. But these guys, these character actors, very seldom are difficult. Mm. It's usually the leads that are difficult. Right, right. Uh, in a sense that, you know, they just prove to be difficult and, and want certain attention and want certain mm. things to be their way. Mm. Character actors don't demand things. Right. So when you get a group of character actors that work the way you like, you keep them. Right. And and they become your group and they're you know, you go to them. Yes. And um, you keep them. Yeah. And that's how it was with with these actors and that's why I, I liked working with them. W would you agree that uh, would you agree with the statement something like because these actors are so versatile and mercurial that they they seem the, the the gravity of them in the scene tends to grow as they age you know like as 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 you watch them age through the movies like you know we've all watched them grow old on the cinema screen 
Do you do you think that the the gravity of them on screen increases as they get older somehow because of the longevity and the power of their performances? I would think so. Yes, um, they be <laughs> you know people get to to feel that they they know them they they feel akin to them. Right, right. And you know, there's an acceptance to to an actor when you're familiar with them. If yeah. if you're familiar with a face, whether you know their name or not, mm. you know, a character actor becomes acceptable in any role that they take on. You sort of like suspend your belief uh, based on the fact that you know them yeah. and you accept the fact that they're they're making that role acceptable for you. And you'll and you're willing to suspend your belief to allow them to to carry that role out and and let you enjoy their performance. Yeah, I I, I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, and and I um I bring it up because you know as as time goes on and they they you know appear less and less in movies. It's it it really is kind of you know talking about a kinship because you've watched these guys for years uh, in movies. Right. You uh, when they appear on screen, uh, even even if for only a moment, you know, even if it's a, a very small part. Uh, for instance, you know, one one of the reasons I was looking forward to this because I love westerns. I get to talk about westerns. Uh, a western I really like it. It was a uh, I think made for a TV uh, was a film called Purgatory. It starred Sam Shepard yes. and Eric Roberts and um, Randy Quaid. But uh, RG appears in it uh, briefly. He's like the coachman between, you know, almost like the boatman in, you know, mythology uh, in the story. And he's the, he's the old uh, coachman. Like he never gets down off the, off the wagon, and he t- he takes them in. He takes them either to heaven or uh, no, he doesn't take them to hell. He only, he's he's the one that comes to get them to take them to heaven or something at the end. And uh, it was it was absolutely fantastic. Like it was really cool. It was a really cool concept of a film. I don't know if you've seen it, but basically all of these former Western icons, if you will, Wyatt Earp, Billy the Kid, Doc Holliday. They're trapped in purgatory, you know, because of their, uh, you know, misdeeds. Their misdeeds, yes. yeah. And so they have to wait until they're invited to 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 leave to to either go to, you know. And basically, it's it's kind of like <laughs> the way they've set up purgatory. It's kind of like, well, if you behave here, you'll get to go and sit at the grown-ups table, that sort of thing, you know. But if you yes. if you kill someone or if you you know com- commit the crimes that you're there for, again the ba- you basically just go so, well sorry they just lead you off into the gates <laughs> of hell or whatever it is. But it was wonderful yeah, to I see him it. in that movie uh, pop up again. The same as when L. Q. Jones pops up in different films. Like, I love when he he he's the uh, he owns the lodge in. Um, and that film, The Edge, with Anthony Hopkins and uh, Zorro. Alec Baldwin. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah. Well, he was in he was in Zorro as well, but he was in The Edge as well. He played the uh, I know I know oh, yeah. th- Three Fingered Jack in 
in Zorro, which was fantastic as well. But right. speaking about Sam Peckinpah, because a lot of these guys were in Peckinpah films, um, RG and one I absolutely, uh, one of my favourite of Peckinpah's, Ride the High Country. Um, yes. But uh, do you know Tim Thomason's Sam Peckinpah story? Yes. Yes. Oh, you know, his, his, you told, he told you the story? Of how he I, I think so. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic because we were talking about um, near the end of our interview. We talked to I said I said you were in uh, the Osterman weekend. Did you meet Sam Peckinpah? And he's like, oh gosh, you know. And he got <laughs> for for the uninitiated, he got set up by a friend who was a stuntman, and he had he thought that his friend had sold Peckinpah on the idea that he was a stuntman, and they set him up to do a stunt, and then. He turned around and everyone was laughing, including Sam Peckinpah, so it was kind of cool. Um, <laughs> but Tim Thomason, I absolutely love. Tim has been a guest uh, on this show, a very, very, very much unsung hero um, of yes. the silver screen is Tim Thomason. Yes, he's in the book and he'll be coming next week to the Orchery Museum. We have an event. That's fantastic. We're filming... You'll have to say g'day for me. You'll have to say. I'm sorry. You'll have to say g'day for me. I shall. So the guy from <laughs> the guy he spoke to in Australia says g'day, because I I got to tell Tim finally to his uh to his ear that uh, that he was one of my heroes. So that was really cool. He's in it. <laughs> I spoke to Fred Williamson last year. Man, what what a treasure that man is. And I hope I look that good when I'm yeah. in my eighties. <laughs> He's a bit unstoppable. Yeah. He's unstoppable, Fred Williamson, isn't he? Yes, yeah. He's he's uh, going to be doing a picture in December in Spain, another Western. Right. That's fantastic. Um, other guys you've got in here, you've said that we're, you know, you've know you lost uh, you know, around 17 people since you took the photographs. One very recently yes, was... Sorry? I can read them off if you'd like. No, 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 no. It's a bit of, one um, one that that happened recently. Very sad was the passing of Robert Forrester. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Bob. What a marvelous, marvelous actor he was. Um, and and you know it was great that a film like Jackie Brown happened to not only remind people who like his work anyway, but to show a whole new generation what a marvelous actor he was. Yes. Really incredible stuff. So, uh, I mean, in uh, in Francis Coppola's uh, comments, he talks about uh, feeling the kinship because you uh, came also from the tutelage, under the tutelage of Roger Corman. Yes. In filmmaking. Can you talk about, uh, I mean, Roger wrote the foreword for the book. Uh, <clears throat> your, early, your early days... Um, yeah, at the Corman, the Corman School, if it were, as it were. <laughs> yeah, it was quite a school, and uh, yeah, uh, I met Roger at the American Film Institute. Actually, I had done uh, a, a short, uh, the Telltale Heart, which was an Edgar Allan Poe uh, short story. Um, I did it with uh, uh, Sam Jaffe and Alex Ben. Alex uh, Cord and Ed Bins and Emma Bernstein did the music. It was a 35 millimeter black and white 
uh, horror picture, a short, 20-minute short that um, we made at the American Film Institute. I directed it with with um, funds that the American Film Institute gave me carte blanche, and uh, it actually went uh, into the theaters as a short, again, with Mary Queen of Scott. Scott, uh, it was a... Uh, it was up for an Academy nomination, and um, USC uh, was against it, and that one for that year, we, we lost. But in any case, um, I projected it at the American Film Institute, and I had a, after the projection, uh, I had a tap on my shoulder from someone, and I turned around, and there was this gentleman, and it was Roger Corman. And he said, uh, hi, uh, how would you like to work for me? <laughs> and I didn't know him. And he said, uh, come and work for me. And I went to New World Pictures, which uh, at the time was uh, first starting out. And um, I started by cutting and writing the, the uh, trailers for Roger uh, that he was shooting in the Philippines and in other countries and cutting all his trailers and radio spots and having a lot of fun. And I did that for close to a year. I cut lots of them <laughs> and, and uh, put them together for well, for getting the uh, films into theaters and drive-ins. Right. And then after a year, um, he gave me a script to, to direct called The Arena with Pam Greer and Margaret Markoff. And uh, I went to Israel to uh, try to get it off the ground, uh, and I stayed at Menachem Golan's house. Uh, he, uh, Menachem, later on would hire me at Canon Films to direct a film, but we couldn't do it in Israel. We uh, didn't have any uh, stuntmen or horses of any caliber to uh, shoot the film there, so I went on to uh, Rome, uh, at which time it was too expensive at that time, or for some reason politically, we couldn't do it. And I went to uh, Gregorio Sacrosan's uh, studio, De Campo Studios in, in Madrid. Couldn't do it there for other reasons. And went back to Italy. This took 14 months to do this film, the arena. Wow. And finally, at Pinacita, we got it done with uh, Ennio Morricone and Francesco Damasi's music. Right. Had such a great time. Met Federico Fellini, who was doing Armacord next to me. He loved the women gladiators who were fighting on my uh, big gladiator, uh, you know, sets. Uh, he loved the large breasts on these women, <laughs> and <laughs> he just went crazy over watching these women fighting. Uh, and uh, I went to his set during my lunch hours and watched him shoot Armacord. That's we had a great relationship. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, that's and, fantastic. And, and <laughs> that's incredible. You, so you you basically you were live you were you you were on the set you you were live on the set and you saw Armacord being filmed. That's incredible. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, it was I, fun. I, yeah, I saw some of the key scenes. Right. That's incredible. That's that is one of my favorite 
of his films, one of my favourite films. Uh, period. Yeah, I do. I can only I can only imagine what it must have been like to. I mean, obviously, when you saw the finished product, did you do you? I mean, when I talk to filmmakers and artists that I admire, like yourself, and you tell me stories about you know things that are, that mightn't have been publicised or little bits and pieces. Do you watch the film differently? Um, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you can't help but understand the differences that you know during the filming and and what you see on the screen. Right. Because you know you go through the same process, but you know because everybody has different techniques and different ways in which to make films. Right. Right. You know you process it yourself. Mm. differently and and you try to understand things so that you can learn different methods and also in conversation you seek out different ways in which to do things and you try to learn different things so yeah I mean mean, the whole process learning yeah but I mean like also too like because you might you know for the scenes that you saw and you might have seen, you know, a, a, you might have seen a certain, for argument's sake, you might have seen a certain take, right? And you go, wow, that, that was really good. But when you go to watch the film, they might have used something that you didn't see them film. You know what I mean? So you're... Right. Or, uh, yeah, but there's also what you see them film and then you don't see it in the movie. Right, right. Yeah. And you kind of wonder why. Yeah, because you go... Or you see something... Yeah, you know something shot out of continuity, and then you see a certain other type of continuity. Right, right. Uh, story storytelling is is amazing because you know there there are phases of storytelling in filmmaking. Yeah. You know you have the storytelling in the script, mm. you have the storytelling during the shooting, and then you have the storytelling in the editing. Yeah. In the post, and those three phases of storytelling are different mm. and uh, it's fascinating to see you know the the development mm. uh, of those three phases it was interesting um, men- it, yeah it was interesting you mentioned you know how you learn like you pick up techniques and all that sort of thing as you watch other people's movies um, looking at like just the just the opening just Chuck Norris's uh, entrance or his his characters, uh, the scene that sort of sets him up, which is the start of Lone Wolf McQuaid, that speaks to me of a man who just loves Sergio Leone. That whole sequence w- was yes. he obviously an influence. Oh yeah, I met Leone, and that's incredible. He was a good friend of Dino De Laurentiis when I was doing drum. Wow, and. Leone stayed at De Laurentiis' house, and I was editing drum. Right. I, I had lots of conversations with an interpreter to with Leone. That's incredible. And I was asking him all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of Leone's pictures were, were my favorites. Yeah. That must have been incredible. Like what? Did, yeah. Did, I mean, I mean did, did you did you talk in you know from a purely from a filmmaker's uh, questions or, or simply like, man, I love that scene. 
I love the opening of Once <laughs> Upon a Time in the West, you know, that sort of thing. Well, you know, when you meet another director, you don't only speak, you know, in, in filmmaker, as a filmmaker, you speak also as a, you know, as a, you know, a fan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I become a kid, you yeah. know, when I'm around one of these great guys. Yeah. You know, when I was at the American Film Institute, we had access to all great directors. My 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 mentors were George Stevens Sr. Yeah. and George Seaton. Wow. And, uh, you know, I had Gregory Peck and, and, and Charlton Heston as my other two mentors. Wow. They were always around me. Wow. And then one day when when Alfred Hitchcock came to the American Film Institute to talk to all the fellows, which I was one, yeah. I cornered him in the library, wow. and I had two hours to talk with him, and he taught me about st uh, uh, story uh, boarding. Right. And I learned how to storyboard from Alfred Hitchcock. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yes. Are you going to... I mean... <laughs> I, think, I think your next book, Steve, should be the autobiography. <laughs> Hey. I mean, I, I had lots of access to a lot of great directors and great actors. That's incredible. I mean, I mean, wow. I mean, sitting with, I mean, I can only, I can only, I can only fantasize, purely fantasize about sitting in a room with Sergio Leone or Hitchcock or uh, a man I would have loved to have played chess with, Stanley Kubrick. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I learned how to make spaghetti <laughs> from Leone, That's and I incredible. remember That's I remember incredible. how to cook spaghetti more so than I remember how he shoots, you know, a scene. Right. <laughs> I forgot more than I know about cooking from Leone That's than I know about filmmaking. <laughs> so if I so if I come round to your place for a bowl of pasta, chances are I'm getting Leone's recipe. Is that right? <laughs> hey. I mean, he was amazing. Yeah. Uh, he, but the thing is that his English wasn't very good. And right, right. I lost out on a lot of a lot of what he was really saying. Right, right. But you know, when you watch someone cook spaghetti, it's different. Right. <laughs> well, learn a lot, a lot more. It it's all there for you, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's it's all pretty much laid out. You've just got to put it all together. But um, yeah. that's that's you know, I think your next book, Steve, should be the autobiography. I, I learned story, or, or you know, you could call it I learned storyboarding from Alfred Hitchcock, or I made pasta. <laughs> with you know, it was fun. There's a couple of chapters for you already. But um, a movie I wanted to talk to you as well as the, the book, as well as I love River of Death. What I wanted to, the sort of my River of Death question was um, Herbert Lom. What was ah. Herbert Lom like? To, uh, to Herbert Lom and yeah, you know, th those guys. I tell you, you know, working with English actors, Donald Pleasance, and and really Robert Vaughn. Yeah. You know, those three guys. Yeah. You know, and here I am in Port St. Johns on the Indian Ocean. Yeah. Only one other picture shot there. Yeah. Two tribes, the Pondos and the Zulus, both of which were at each other's throats. And Afrikaans, I mean, <laughs> yeah. wasn't the most comfortable time working in an environment right. that during during this, 
signed by the, the Directors Guild because I wasn't supposed to be working during the apartheid. Americans working during apartheid was bad. I was fined. I did it anyway. English actors, they didn't have the American politics. Um, I couldn't get an American crew, but I got an Israeli crew, and I got an Italian crew. Right. Mixed them up. Israelis in an in a Afrikaans situation that was pro-Nazi. Um, very tense. Uh, anti anti everything. Right. Um, you know, if I tell you the politics, you wouldn't believe it, but we got the picture done. Um, those English actors, and I'll also tell you what I think of English actors. English actors are, are probably the most skilled, prepared. Um, they're just great. Yeah. When you're working in a jungle and you want to move a crew from point A to point B, and you turn around and you see Herbert Lom and, and Donald Pleasance and Robert Vaughn pick up, you know, cases of, of equipment and help the crew move. Right. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, you, you don't see that mm, no, anywhere no. else. No. Oh. And those are, those are real professionals. Mm. And if you take a scene and you say, change the dialogue, and you want to do something different, or you ask them to do something, there's nothing, no back talk, no, no problems, no nothing. Right. It's done. They're professionals. They're great. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful people in that they understand acting. Mm. They're, they're not method. They're not, you know, what you expect from theater Shakespearean actors. Right, right. They're great. Great actors, yeah. and uh, I had I had a lot of English actors because Harry Ellen Towers, who was the producer, the line producer, yeah. um, good guy, great guy, and it was a treacherous, dangerous, dirty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had sharks, we had poisonous this and that. Everything that moved was poisonous. Uh, and like I said, two tribes that were at each other and trying to shoot South America for Africa or Africa for, for South America, excuse me. Yeah. Um, you know, all the para, uh, uh, the, uh, pyrotechnics were real. Right. Nothing was, was fake. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's the bullet squibs were not bullet squibs. They were explosions. They were, uh, dynamite black powder, you name it. You know, everything was dangerous. You know, if something went off, it was nitroglycerin. It wasn't, it wasn't some, uh, you know, powdered this or that, 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 uh, some agency looked at and made sure that nobody got hurt. People yeah. got hurt. Yeah. And if we flew something, uh, it was dangerous. If we, uh, had something in the water, there were, bad things in the water that could kill you. Right, right. And uh, it was dangerous. I mean, you live in a 
a land of lots of dangerous animals and insects. That was the same type of land. Wow, okay, yeah. Just uh, so prob you probably, probably, probably know lot, what I'm talking about. Probably a lot more wet than... <laughs> than uh, <laughs> probably a lot more wet and humid than we are. We're sort of we're sort of dry and burnt at the moment, like like bad toast. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, much more humid. Yeah. But we had a we had a tough time. But these these actors, you know, Herbert Lom, professional, great guy. Yeah. You know, Donald Pleasance, funny, funny, funny humor. Yeah. You know, kept the crew in stitches. Yeah. Kept the humor high. I I love working with these guys. Yeah. These are great. Robin Vaughn, PhD in English literature. Yeah. Always reading books. Yeah. Always, exactly. always happy. You know, no, no back talk, no yeah. nothing. L. Q. Jones. Uh, you know, I wanted R. G. for the part, but he was busy. Yeah. Got L. Q. Blew him down. Did the role. Slimy character. Yeah. Great guy. Good yeah. friend. That's just incredible. did it. It's Michael just... Dudikoff hanging in there. Yeah. He he. <laughs> He went on a he went on a long ride with the with Canon Films, didn't he? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, he did his uh, martial arts stuff and yeah, he was an American. Know, that's what American he American Ninja. Known for and American Ninja. That's right. Yeah. And um, this was something new for him. We mm. we broke him into uh, an environment that he wasn't comfortable in. Got hurt a few times, but hang in, hung in there, and and yeah. did well. Yeah. No, and uh, the picture. You know, the picture did what it did. Yeah. Uh, it was a, you know, a, a McLean picture, uh, and, and it was canon. Yeah. We had lots of incidents and lots of Nazis. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, uh, you, you've talked about a lot of titans of cinema. Um, Menachem Golan is, belongs in that category somewhere, doesn't he? He's great. I'll tell you, lots of people badmouth him, but yeah. I never had a bad situation with him. I'd work, I would have worked with him on lots of pictures. Um, I had other things to do, but I would have done more with him. Yeah. And I never had a bad word to say about him, and I never will. Yeah. He always came through, and I, I, I personally like Cannon. Yeah. And I had other, I had other work to do with him. I would have done a Spider-Man if not. He having problems with Stan Lee. Right, right. Um, there was a lot of good stuff that I thought they did. Uh, he and Yoram Globus were good people. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, aside from what was said about them, sure, sure. They never hurt me. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I mean, look, there's always there's always conflicting stories. Uh, yeah. To everything, but. For my money, the, I've never, I never, I never saw a man who never lost that giddy childhood love of cinema that he had. That's true. Mm. I was with him in Israel when he was doing Israeli pictures and little things and and good little things. And when he came to America and and started up Canon and working with a bunch of you know <laughs> cutthroat. Yeah. I mean. I'll tell you a story. When I was in Russia doing The Wolves and Roger Corman was there to use the market and and Menachem was there to use the market being Russia yep. and try to take advantage of that market to do pictures and I was working with Arthur Brana on The Wolves. Yeah. 
I was at a dinner with all three of those producers, and we had this dinner. And when the bill came to pay for the dinner, mm. that bill sat on the table, and all three of them were waiting for the other to pick up the bill. And I was laughing no. because three cheap producers that wouldn't pick up the bill. <laughs> no. I was waiting for one of them to pick it up. Uh, <laughs> it was yeah. a funny scene that none of them would pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't cool. know who eventually paid for it, but you can imagine three of the cheapest producers in the world yeah. not wanting to pick up a bill. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What a type, mate! You've you've well, you've been in some oh, look. What a biography, Steve. Man, you got some great. <laughs> you've got you've got too many great stories for. To, I have yeah. a ton of great stories. I yeah. wish I could tell some of them. Yeah. Some of them are unfortunately not oh, very okay. good to tell. Oh, well, just just for you, but I mean that's that's I mean that's why one goes on these journeys with our careers and and the stories we do pick up and the ones that aren't. The ones that you, the ones that you know in yourself are like that's the real wealth that you accumulate in this life, yeah. Yeah, they're the, I mean, <laughs> they're, they're the real, they're the real riches. Let's face it, because you're not only surrounded by peers and and other professionals that you admire in an industry that you are uh, have great fondness and an affinity within. Uh, so all of this, like aside from. Aside from, let's face it, everyone needs to make money to live, but the real wealth comes from these experiences. Yes, I agree. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the real gold at the at the end of the rainbow, so to speak, is is these wonderful things that you accumulate through your life. But uh, yes. listen, Steve, you've been a great sport. My last question in regards to the book uh, and talking about westerns, in talking about the book, in talking about filmmaking, uh, a man that you have in the book. Um, that that I think is incredible, and one of, in one of my favourite westerns, which is One Eyed Jacks, was Carl Malden. Um, yes. How what what was it uh, what was it like to to be uh, uh, to photograph Carl Malden to 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 know Carl Malden for however long you knew him? Or? Well, I didn't know him for very long, right. and um, he wasn't in very good health when he came. And um, there, it, it was a little bit of a a problem with him, right. uh, to say the least. Um, I'm sorry that you're asking me about him. I wish I had a, no, no, uh, no. a colorful story to tell right. you. No, no, no. But, but uh, he uh, he was good friends with um, with several of the actors, and uh, the way in which he came. Uh, was sudden, and uh, the way in which he left was sudden. Right, right. But, um, I, you know, when we do these photographs, the first run of photographs was done in a in my first studio, which was a, uh, a rental lab, and it was a big lab, and I built the sets because of R.G. and L.Q. and David Carradine. I... I was building the sets in the lab itself that was spotless and and meticulous and 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 very uh it was a a lab that was meant to be technical right. in a sense where any dirt or any debris would would have been if if any of the uh high end f photographers and 
you know, I had curators and 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 high end photographers that came there. Um, and if anybody knew that I was filming, uh, you know, taking pictures of, of actors in barns and and saloons and and places in which had all this debris and artifacts and and stuff, straw, uh, wood, and all the sets that I was building, I would work eight hours to build a set and then photograph them over maybe three hours and then try to take down the set in another three, four hours and try to clean up the lab and, and dark room, uh, you know, so in, in such a way in which there would be no telltale sign that that activity took place. And then when someone came in, if they found the enlargers or the sink or, or any of the darkroom areas with any dust or anything that had any of these signs, they would have screamed or yelled at me or complained or walked out. Um, it would have been, you know, bad. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so when Carl Malden came in, uh, I didn't have the set ready. Right. As as it was with many actors, several actors. Right, right. Some of the actors I was able to provide entertainment, so to speak. I had other people who they knew uh, or, or were friends, like Buddy Hackett. Right. I would right. ask Buddy to come and tell him jokes. Right. <laughs> Carl was very friendly with Buddy, right. so Buddy would come over, and or David Carradine would come over and tell them stories, That's entertain them. Right. So when Buddy came over with Carl, he would uh, tell them jokes, right, right. and I would hear them laugh in the other room while That's I was good. lighting right, right. Or, or building. <laughs> well, I don't yeah. know what I was doing, but I was praying that <laughs> Carl wouldn't leave. Right. <laughs> That's but then when he came in yeah. to see what I was doing, I, I had to apologize. Right, right. And of course, he got angry with me. Right. And then I had to explain what the process was. Right. And the process was a time exposure. I had to set the camera. Yeah. And then when I put the actor in the chair, which he was in, yeah. and I had to set the lights, I had to balance the lights. Yeah to the exposure, because the exposure was a time exposure, yeah. and Carl didn't like it, yeah. and um, in order to balance the lighting um, and take a test shot and, and stabilize the camera because of the time exposure, um, he was very impatient, yeah. and I had a... Uh, I had to explain to him what the procedure was, and he was impatient, mm. and I finally got off a few shots. Now, normally I take 36 on a roll, and I take four rolls right. of film, so four times 36, that many exposures. Right. He didn't allow me to do that, and um, he basically walked out. Right. <laughs> so you're asking me how he was? Yeah, okay. <laughs> but that's I how mean, he was. That's. I mean, look. I mean, uh, the guy. I, I suppose once, once you know, he gets, you know, you get to a certain age, he's, he's, he's done his bit for, he's done his bit for cinema. Um, 
But uh, well, look, I, look, I mean, I, I okay. I mean, I mean, I, I think that's isn't that always the peril that you're in when you meet finally meet someone <laughs> that when you finally meet or talk to someone you revere for whatever reason, professionally, artistically, uh, you know, and and you, you do run the risk of being disappointed. Well, yes, and you know, I've shot. Well, I've worked with many. Yeah. But I've shot, and if we're talking about the book, I've shot 83 actors. Yeah. Only two or three had this this reaction or this this uh, personality, and it's only because they're not used to the procedure. Right. Right. You know, this procedure is to me. Yeah. If I were to tell you how I feel and my approach as a director, this is very much like a motion picture. Yes. I mean, they come in with a certain attitude. Yes. Most of the actors, in fact, all of the actors, all 83 actors come in thinking mm. that this is a photograph. Right. Now, that's because most people have taken photographs where, click, it's a photograph. Right. You know, right. You, you expose, you know, the camera shutter is goes click, and it's yes. done. Yes. You know, if you click it so many times, it's done. They mm. walk out. Everything is done, but this procedure for the book yes. was like no other procedure they have ever experienced. It's a, it's a procedure back from the 1870s. Yes, yes. You know, and and, uh, and I have to explain to them that they have to stay very still, that they can't breathe or they can't blink, for <laughs> sure, and they have to hold their breath somewhat or breathe shallow, yeah. and they can't put their hands in a position like if they put their hand on their stomach, yeah. their, just their breathing would make their hands twice the size of their head. Right. Based right. on the fact their hand would be moving towards the lens and, and it would be exaggerated. If they move their head, it would blur. If right. they blinked, their eyes would blur. If they, if they moved in any way, they would blur. And if, if they, if certain things happen. Now, let me explain something about this procedure right. that could be interesting to you or you can think it's boring. <laughs> this is called ghost photography. Right, right. In the olden days, it, it, ghosting was the blurring because everybody who saw it, especially the Native Americans, they looked at their images when they moved and they saw a ghost next to them. Right, it's called right. an anomaly. Right. These anomalies were ghosts, and sometimes they were ghosts, because I'll tell you something, if you look in the book, yes. next to next to uh, some of the actors, there are ghosts. Right. Now, nobody's going to see these except me and whoever I tell them to. Right. Now, in Buddy Hackett's move, uh, uh, picture, right. I'll tell you a secret. Okay. In Buddy Hackett's picture in the book, there is a rifle. And that rifle killed 23, 22 people. Wow. That rifle comes from the uh, 1800s. It was a marshal or a sheriff's rifle. That rifle is off to the left in the picture. Yeah. That rifle was used one week prior to the photograph in Buddy Hackett. It was used in an LQ Jones photograph because I shot it. I shot that rifle leaning up against the side of the wall on the left in the same set one week prior with L.Q. Jones sitting in that set, right. which I redressed for Buddy Hackett one week later. Right. 
the ghost of that rifle, that rifle was taken out and returned to the owner, the collector. A rifle costs a lot of money. Yeah. And that rifle appeared in Buddy Hackett's film as a ghost one yeah. week later. Wow. Now, now I've, that's I've, called an anomaly. Right. It's I've, called ghost. All right, I've got... I've pulled up the photograph because I've got the PDF that you... Look to the left. Look to the and left. And look against the wall. You'll see the rifle. Holy crap, there it is. Yeah. Now, yeah. that's not a double exposure because you can't make double exposures on these on right. these photographs. Right. There you now, go. Now, on, on Denver Pyle's photograph... Right. ...which won't see any ghosting because right. his photographs, which I did not put in the book... Right. One week prior to him, his wife Tippy brought him, and he's on chemo. Now, in his photograph, there is a tube right. going to, into his body, into his arm, right. that he's on chemo. There's a tank behind him. Right. I don't know what's a tank, but anyways, he's on chemo. Wow. And he died two weeks later wow. after that photograph. Wow. Now, one week prior, when he came, I shot him. His face was completely white in 48 photographs. Right. I couldn't use any of the photographs, obviously, because I didn't have a face. Right. But I asked Tippy to bring him back, and when Denver came back and I photographed him, I had a nice talk with him before I took his photograph, and I asked him to conjure up his energy and give me the photograph, give me his face, and he gave me his face. And I was able to get his photograph. Wow! I mean, the, it, energy I mean, just, is what makes a photograph. I know. It's just. I mean, they're 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 so beautiful. The the actors that are in it are really unsung heroes and villains because they've been in so many yeah. films in so many different capacities. They are the mercurial, uh, magnificent performers of of the movie business. And you have uh, completed a, a, a titanic task uh, in bringing this wonderful, wonderful piece, uh, this wonderful document of not just uh, cinema history, but also a masterclass in uh, photography. Steve Carver, I could talk to you for hours, sir. You've got more stories. <laughs> You've got more stories sure. than, you can, than you can throw a stick at. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure. I want everyone to please go and check out Western Heroes, uh, the unsung heroes and villains um, of the Silver Screen by my guest, the most excellent uh, Steve Carver. Well, thank you, Ken. I appreciate it and I enjoyed it. <laughs>